Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so there goes and ski jumping and cross-country skiing and downhill skiing and almost every winter sport. <laughs> they're, they're pretty good. The Norwegians are pretty good. Hard to, hard to have hate for the Norwegians, really. <laughs> well, yesterday, when they were in the weeds, they were only good at speed skiing. Yeah. The Dutch are good at speed skiing. It's crazy. The Dutch. All right. So, uh, two topics today, because these don't take long. Probably. Uh, so, transformations. Um... So this is the second. This is these are pretty straightforward. Sometimes we look at our data with exploratory data analysis. We see what looks like a difference. We run the ANOVA and we get nothing. So we've got three groups or five groups or whatever. We do the we look at it. We look at a graph and say, oh, these two are different, or these three are different, and these two control groups are the same. Wonderful, we're done. And we do an ANOVA. We get an F value that isn't significant. It happens. Most, most, most likely, this is because of a violation of an assumption. Um, remember all the assumptions, right? We make all those assumptions, but I talked about it the last time. And one of the assumptions is the null hypothesis assumption, and as long as every other assumption's met and it's violated, we're fine. We get a significant result, etc. However, oftentimes we, we, we have an assumption that we violate an assumption, and a lot of times it's a, the variance assumption, the homogeneity of variance when it's written right up here. All the variances are equal. So, and you know, the F test is, is, is very robust, and what that means is it can deal with violations of its assumptions really well. It, it stands up nicely to violations of its assumptions. But a ta- there will come a time when you can violate it too much. And that rule of thumb is when one is about four times bigger than another. One variance four times bigger than another. So, what can we do? Well, we can transform our data. And we're going to do that using some sort of mathematical operation. It's pretty straightforward. What you're going to do, it's just like, you know what, a transformation... Let's just say, and this has never happened in this course, but let's just say at the end of the year, I look and go, the average in this course was 60. That's wrong. Something screwed up. The average should be closer to about, typically in this class, about 75. Well, I could add 15 to every score. That's a transformation. I'm transforming the variables. Transforming my variable. You might think to yourself, well, that's not fair. You can't just do something to numbers. You can't just add numbers to numbers and whatever the hell you want. Sure you can. Sure you can. There's nothing wrong with it. Think about this. You listen to the radio here in Sault Ste. Marie's border town. They still have radio stations, right? They listen to the radio at all anymore? Oh, yeah. So, pretty rare. <laughs> hear a lot of radio anymore. But, they, here they announce the, 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 the temperature in Celsius and in, in, in Yankee imperialist running dog degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I like to quote North Korean propaganda when possible. Um, so, so they will use Fahrenheit and Celsius. Both perfectly good measuring systems. So they'll say it's 
20 degrees Celsius, 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Great. Those both are measuring the same thing. It's not like it's warmer in the states because their numbers are higher. Oh, it's warmer in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. I'm sure there are people that think that. So the slower people are down. But all you're doing is expressing it in a different unit, right? So you're just changing the units. That's all you're doing when you're going to do a transformation is change the units. Like you did in the first assignment. Remember you took inches and turned them into centimeters. Or was it the other way around? I can't remember. Right? When I, when I sometimes buy, uh, when I think about cooking something, a lot of times if I'm not going to use my instant read, or my, instant, my, my thermometer I use when I'm roasting something, and if I go look up something on the internet, it'll tell me always weight, uh, you know, temp, temp, uh, per pound. And it's not listed per pound on the package, and I look and go, oh, three kilograms. Well, that is 6.6 pounds. Fine. I can then figure it out. It's better to cook stuff like that using a thermometer, though which I do totally in Fahrenheit and everything else is in Celsius. Because my oven's in Fahrenheit. Mine was not in Celsius. It's crazy when you watch like a British cooking show and you're like, tune your oven up to 140. You're like, well, that won't do a thing. Oh, Celsius. Even better though, in Britain, they have ovens, the gas ovens just go up to a number. <laughs> tune your oven up to four. What? How hot is that? Gas mark four. So strange. I'll turn my oven up to six. My oven goes to 11. Yeah, that's <laughs> really weird. So he's changing units. Whoa, that was cool. Speaking of transfer, I didn't expect that, that transition. That was pretty good. I enjoyed that. Okay, here's one. It's the logarithmic transformation. Um, this is taking the logarithm of a number. Do you remember doing logarithms in high school math? No? Okay, i very quickly explain it to you. See if you can detect the pattern. See if you can see anything with this marker. Okay. Can you detect the pattern? Right? Goes up by a unit of magnitude. That's right, because it's base 10, so it's a logarithm of base 10. It's 10 to the 1 equals 10. 10 to the 2, 10 squared is 100. 10 cubed is 1,000. It's that simple. Okay? That's a logarithm. What this does is it's going to pull down big numbers a lot more than small ones. Look what it did to 1,000. It made it 3. Look what it did to 10. It made it 1. Now, that's not much of a difference. That's a huge difference. Well, those are crazy. Why would anybody do that? Well, what about um, the Richter scale? With the, with the shaking of the earth. With the earth and the quaking. Earthquakes are measured in the Richter scale. The Richter scale is a logarithmic scale. A Richter, you know how like you hear, oh, remember that earthquake that hit Sault Ste. Marie? It was a 4.2, eh? And then you hear one that hits somewhere and it's a 5, and you go, oh, this is only 0.8 more. Yeah, except that 5 is, is 10 times more powerful than 4. The one that hit Japan that made the nuclear reactor fall apart, and the radiation's coming and we're all going to die. No, it's not. That's a myth. But I saw a map on the internet. doesn't matter. Um, 
Snopes.com is your friend. But that was like a 7.8 or something crazy like that. And you remember the little tiny one we had here, the little thing, and some people felt it, and then everybody had to leave buildings because we don't have earthquakes here, and we're like, ah, oh, it's kind of like having snow in Vancouver, the whole city shuts down. <laughs> right, right, so same sort of thing. My wife was working down at the, um, I don't know, the bug lab or the forestry building or some crazy place where she was teaching people French, and they all had to evacuate. I didn't feel it. I was having a nap. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was genuinely scared. That was like a four-point-something. The one in Japan, 7.8. Yeah, that's a thousand times lot bigger. A thousand. And there's a tsunami and it's crazy. Totally sensible. Sound, right? Decibels. 130 is 10 times louder than 120 decibels. Right? So 120 is outside in Toronto downtown. Loud traffic noise. I'd rush out. 130 is standing beside the PA at a concert. 140 is standing beside a jet engine. Yeah, I can see they're going up by about 10 times a time. Okay, so log variables are sensible. And they happen a lot in nature. Happen a lot in nature. Um, so we get exponential curves. So things like reaction times. So if we're looking at reaction time, I, I feel very professorly for some reason when I do that. Um, and amount of alcohol you drink. Your alcohol, your, your reaction time increases with alcohol consumption. So maybe it's down here with so zero drinks. One, two, three, four. It gets very bad very quickly. Right? That's why you shouldn't be driving with the alcohol. Don't blame the liquor, Ricky. <laughs> Feel the way the shit's clinging to the air. A shit storm coming. I say that a lot, we. See that a lot before meetings. <laughs> if they're going to be bad meetings. Me and Paul and Dwayne. Dwayne's from there, though. So is Paul, but it didn't seem like it. Anyway. <coughs> Exponential curve. Sometimes these are going to have a lot more variance, though, aren't they? Because there's bigger, bigger means going to have more variance. It? <coughs> it makes sense, doesn't it? So we're going to suck that down. So let's make these numbers a lot smaller. Okay? So it's a pretty common thing to do with react. In fact, it's almost always done with reaction time. Negative values are a problem. You can't get negative reaction time. That's, that's, that's reading thoughts and crap. So, but there could be negative numbers. You can't take the log of a negative number. If you try to do that with your calculator, you just get E. Right? Or error. Whatever your calculator does for an error. Well, why don't you just add a constant to it first? So go, I don't know, how about... Instead of log of x, log of x plus 10. Doesn't matter. So you'll see that done sometimes. x plus k, k is a constant. Nothing to worry about. Pretty commonly done thing with things like reaction time. And I know that I've had reaction time used in, in honors thesis experiments that I've supervised, and people come back to me and they analyze their data and they say, Dave, it didn't work. And I look and I go, sure it worked. I can tell. Look at the graph. Yeah, but the you know is not significant. And I say, go back and do take the logarithm of all your scores. They come back, go work. And I go, I know. Because that's what I do. Square root, you know about square roots. He said, hopefully. This is gonna this is used with counted data. If I've counted the number of, like if I was counting the number of people in here wearing hats, which is a big number. 
Six. Six people are wearing hats. Sounds like I'm doing a Sesame Street thing. Six. Yeah. Uh, did you see uh, Sherlock doing that thing on Sesame Street? No. You'll have to watch that. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, with the oranges and the apples. And he's like trying to tell the difference between the two. And they, they, Who's the guy? It's not the camp, but the other guy's with him. Some Muppet I don't know. Yeah. And he keeps calling him Sherlock. Right, Sherlock? And he goes, I'm not actually Sherlock. My name is, what's his name? Benedict. 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 He says, okay, Benedict Sherlock. It's great. It's great. Search that. Later. Not now. Not just, I'm the entertainment right now. So, if I'm counting hats, well, I don't know why I do that. But I might say, if I was giving evidence to the administration that this room is weird and cold, say, there's six people wearing hats in here. I've counted the number of hats in other classes. Nobody's wearing a hat. And it's not significantly different. But yeah, there's more people wearing hats in here. There's something funny about counted data. Um, and I'm not going to go into why, but what happens is the mean ends up being proportional to the variance. For some reason, it's just it's a, it's a property of the universe. That when you have counting the number of x's or y's or whatever in a couple of groups, the means end up being proportional to the variances. You don't want that. You want the variances equal. What the square root does is it actually fixes that. It goes away because what's it going to do? It's going to suck big numbers down a lot more than small numbers. Kind of like what this, what the, what the log transform does. What if you have a negative number? How do you take the square root of a negative number? Well, you don't. You just add a constant and then... Or... Do you know what the square root of negative 1 is? Uh, it's i. That doesn't help you at all in statistics. Just an interesting thing to know that i stands for an imaginary number. Doesn't help you in statistics. Stop writing it down. Um, and it actually shows... I think in electronics, you end up using i. It's weird. Remember learning that in school? There's a lot of you guys learned that in school because you're all saying it. Remember you learned that and went, that's stupid. <laughs> right? Because that was one of those cases where there's a lot of things where you go, I wonder what the use is ever going to be of this. But when they just say, well, we don't know why it's impossible, so we're going to print. It's a let's pretend number. That's weird. All right. So just do that. No big deal. You could do the reciprocal transformation. Take the reciprocal. You just turn the fraction upside down. You turn that frown upside down. So let's say your number was three quarters. Well, now it's four thirds. Why would you do that? Well, partially just because you can. But it's like it's like Mount Everest. It's just because it's there. No, really. Um, you make a range, you makes the range smaller so it sucks variances down. That's all. How does it make the range smaller? Well, what if you had numbers that went from one to a thousand? Now you have numbers that go from zero to one. It makes the range a lot smaller. Right? Now again, you can't take the reciprocal of a zero, so just add a constant. I think that's P, pretend number. So no, it's not. I made that part up. This is used with, with latencies a lot. Not with reaction time, but other latencies, other timed things. There's a story that probably isn't true, <laughs> but when um, 
looking at uh, an effect called the partial reinforcement enforcement extinction effect. It's a long time. It doesn't matter if it took learning, you know what, what that is. But looking at the time it takes a rat to run down the arm of a maze. And it should take less time, and it did take less time, and no one saw. You look at it, it doesn't show up statistically. And a person I know claims to have told this to a person who discovered this. So my old stats prof claims this. So I told him, I just take that reciprocal. He said, I can't do that. I can't take that reciprocal. It's a different question. And I told him, you can torture numbers all you want. I don't know where they come from. What are you doing when you're taking a reciprocal of time? You're getting speed. That's all you're doing. Right? So if it's just elapsed time, like five seconds, ten seconds, miles per hour, kilometers per hour, meters per second, that's all you're doing. So it's, it actually really helps. So whenever you have latencies, it's almost always done. Almost always. So you're really just turning time into speed. So it's very common, very common. All right, arc sine. Oh boy, trigonometry. Look, I'm not going to go. Arc sine is just the the, the the inverse of a sine, right? Sort of, isn't that right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I have no idea. No, you guys do trig? Do trigonometry? No. Did a long time ago, right? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. It's been a long time that I've studied trigonometry. But it's like the inverse of a of a cos of a sine. Use it with proportions. With proportions. Uh, again, there's something that happens with proportions that it proportions end up with tails that are crunched up. Think of it this way: with a proportion, how many times, you know, if it's just like proportion of right and wrong answers, you're going to get a lot more around the middle, around the 50th percentile, than you're going to be at the top or the bottom, as far as variance goes. Because there's fewer ways to get a high score or a low score, a lot of ways to get a score in the middle. So what it does is it just pulls it out. It's just because of how arc signs work. Don't worry about it. And it turns it into radians. It's crazy. And it's actually not just the arc sign. It's two times the arc sign square root. And I, I don't even know why. So when you are doing proportions, like for example, percent correct, Experiments. So you're looking at a percentage of correct recall, of words recalled. It's almost always two times the arc sine square root of the proportion, of the percentage. It's, again, this is something that's happened a few times with honor students that are doing, because they often do memory experiments, are often done with me, and they do this for percent correct, and they come back and say nothing happened, and I say, now go do it again doing that to the data. And they say, why? And I say, you forgot 3256. Just do this transformation. It's not that hard because the computer does it for you. Or you can do the calculator. And then it works. All right. When do you transform your data? Well, not every chance you get. I mean, it's not one of these things that you always you have to do. This. In fact, most of you will never run into this. But if the variances are messy, it's very often the case, that, and you have a difference, you can see it. When I say messy, roughly four times bigger than another, and you can see there's really a difference, try a transformation. And try the appropriate transformation, not just all of them. So I give you some rough guidelines today about which ones to pick. If your data don't violate assumptions, don't transform. Um, and also, if you found a significant difference, 
Why transform the data? I had this argument with my PhD supervisor. I was doing percent correct with my ch chickadees pecking at touch screens, and she said, aren't you supposed to do an arc sine square root transformation on that? And I said, why? She said, well, everybody does that. And it was, it, was very, it was one thing in my life I was better at than her, and that was statistics. And I said, no, because it already worked. I don't have to do this. It makes things more complicated for people. And she said, yeah, but people always do that. And I said, as my mother used to say, if everyone jumped off a bridge, would you? And then she laughed and went, ha, ha, okay, you're right. That's not how she laughed at all. Ha, ha, ha. Nothing like a Sarah Shuttleworth laugh. Much bigger laugh. But point is, you don't have to do it if, if it already worked. The other thing is, well, I'm showing you a graph. I show you percent correct. I don't show you two times the arc sine square root of the percent correct. I don't know what that means. I know what perfect is in percent. It's 100. I don't know what 2 times the arc sine square root of 100 is. I just don't know. So I don't, you never present transformed data, but you analyze transformed data. And then you note in the figure caption, uh, data were transformed because, you know, uh, using 2 times the arc sine square root. Questions about that? Okay, see, so that's a quick one. That's our first quick one. We have two quick ones today. Okay. Okay, now we will change gears and talk about postdoc comparisons. I will never make you do these. I want you to know about this, but I'm not going to make you do these things. Okay. So let's see of a significant F. You get the ANOVA, it's done, you've got your different groups, and you didn't have to make you transform it, you didn't, I don't care. Point is, you've got your F, and you go, but now what? But not what? So your H-O is mu1 equals mu2 equals mu3 equals dot, 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 equals mu k. That's your H-O. Your H-A, remember, in analysis of variance is just the two means are different from each other. It doesn't say which two. And it says just at least two. It doesn't say two and not three, three and not six. It says two are different. So which means are different from each other? You could ask yourself. Yes. You reject. You reject the null. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, which means differ from each other? The F test doesn't tell you that. It tells you <coughs> that there is more variance due to treatment than we would expect by chance. That's all it tells you. Hmm. Well. One of the ways you can deal with this is something called a Bonferroni correction. I don't know if you've ever had the Bonferroni. It's delicious. It's a stuffed pasta. So, like if you just did a t-test, because what well, could you do? Well, why don't you just do, you got two groups, you want to see if they're different, just do a freaking t-test when you're done. It's good. But if you did like, let's say you have four groups, 
There may you know, be four groups. You've got one, two, three, and four. Now to find out which two differ from each other, you've got to do a t-test between one and two, one and three, one and four, two and three, two and four, and three and four. That's uh, one, two, three, four, four. You've got to do six t-tests. Your alpha level is going to go up because you get six t-tests times 0.05. Wow. Well, that's no good. <coughs> so what are you going to use for your alpha? Now you've got to use 0.05 divided by 6. Kind of hard to find significance. So what the Bonferroni key procedure takes care of that, it just figures out, it divides... It does exactly what I just did. It divides, n is the number of comparisons you're doing. So if you want to do all six of those, you get an alpha level of 0.05 divided by six. But let's say you only want to do three comparisons. You do 0.05 divided by three. Okay, so it's just a t-test. Looks just like that, it's just a t-test. Okay, there's the mean, one of the means you're looking at, the other mean. Normally, what would you have at the bottom of a t-test, right? You would have uh, this. S squared 1 over n1, s squared 2 over n2. Well, we have an estimate of s squared. We calculated it. It's called mean squared error. So let's use 2 times that divided by n. n is the number of subjects per group. It's called t prime. That's, that's, not, that's not just a thing on that. That's not J.J. Abrams' lens flare. Anyone? No? Um, that's just a prime, T prime. Okay? So you can do that. That's an approach. You can also do this. It's called the studentized range. I, it's the largest difference, or mean, minus the smallest mean divided by the square root of mean squared error over n, and that gives you a number called q. I don't know why. And then any difference that's bigger than q is significantly different. That's all it is. Just straightforward. This is a commonly enough used one. Here's another one. Newman Cools. I like that one because it's got a good name. You take that Q thing that you look up in a table. You, take a you find this in a table. You look up a Q for whatever range size. How many, how many means? Like you're comparing three means or five means or eight means or six means. And 0.05 and degrees of freedom, so that's the alpha level. Multiply times the mean squared over n, and that gives you W. They're running out of letters. This is what happens. They just run out of letters. Um, so any set of, 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 of comparisons with a range of R, so that's like any five comparisons, any two comparisons, whatever, how many differences you want to compare. So let's say all comparisons with a range of three. In other words, uh, three means apart. And then it says, okay, if the difference between those 
is bigger than this number that you calculate, it's, those means are significantly different. That's all it is. It's also, this is very similar to Tukey's HSD. HSD stands for honestly significantly different. It really does. Because they're all trying to sell these almost, it seems, you know? It uses the same approach, but it always uses the largest possible range, from the largest to the smallest. You ever going to test this on? Nope. This? Cool. No, no, because frankly, I don't know them off the top. I, the only one I know off the top of my head is, well, Bonferroni. And I guess I know Steve Dice Range off the top of my head because they make sense to me. These ones are kind of weird because you end up with a calculation and then you get a number and then you look at your means and there's a difference figure in that number. It, for me, it's counterintuitive. And it's hard to do things that aren't intuitive. For me, the, statistically, they aren't intuitive. The point is, you have different comparisons to choose from. When you learn how to do this with a computer, especially, um, you'll find it's like oh, there's all these different comparisons I can do. Which one should I choose is the question you'll be asking yourself when you are analyzing data. And a lot of you guys want to do the honors program, want to do honors thesis, or you're just reading a, pay, a paper and you say, what the hell are you talking about? What's a Newman Cools? What's a Bonferroni? You know? Well, which comparison should you use? Well, the first thing you do is you, <laughs> this is what most people do, they do all of them and find out the ones that fit what they want. <laughs> That's what most people do. I'm not going to lie to you. I like, I've used Tukey and I've used HSD. Yes, right, uh, Tukey's HSD and I've used Newman Cools. Um, you got to kind of stick to one in an article. Like you're writing a paper, you don't switch the postdoc tests. Because that's a dead giveaway to somebody reading it. It's like, oh, so it worked with this one. And then it worked with this one. And then he goes back over to that one there. He's kind of cheating. So you stick with one. You stick with And if you do that, and you submit that somewhere, some, the editor or your, your owner's thesis supervisor, somebody's going to say, yeah, no, you're just fishing, aren't you? Right? So I've usually used HSD. Um, I use it because it's a nice mix between being easy enough to find significance, but it's conservative enough that it doesn't find everything significant. There is another one that you might hear about, which is the Chiffé test. Uh, how do you spell that? I think it's Chiffé. Uh, like it's such a conservative test that sometimes when you do the ANOVA, you find significance. It doesn't find any means being different. It should tell you it's a useless, useless thing. Why would you use such a thing? Um, I don't like post-hoc comparisons anyway. I'll tell you why. A properly designed experiment doesn't need them. Now, this is, by the way, is me editorializing. Um, I don't like them because what am I interested in? I'm interested in an overall pattern in my data. I want to see, is this group different from this group and not this one? Look, if I get a graph like this, okay, I got four groups, and I got two groups in the middle and these two groups here. I don't care. So it just fall apart, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, what happened? I don't know. Move my leg, fall apart. Okay, well, it's not your leg, you better. Oh. Uh, this, this is a, uh, boy, boy, they put a lot of glue on here. This is it's like scotch tape. <laughs> Find some 
Don't cuss my horses, so what you don't tell us. It should stick pretty well there. Good. Um, yes, we've put some lovely aluminum, full aluminum trim on the garbage can. Um, if this is my experiment, and if I design this properly, these are, let's say these are both control groups, these are both experimental groups that I expect to get from the control group. I, this is the, the result I wanted. I don't care if these are different from each other. I don't care if these are different from each other. I care what the overall pattern, which is my control group, is different from my experimental group. I'm done. That's... I, I think post-hoc tests are because of a misunderstanding of what ANOVA does. ANOVA is supposed to look for a pattern in your data. That's its thing it does. It's not really about which means you're different. If you want to do what means you're different, just do some t-tests for this. Like, why are you doing an ANOVA? It's my view. I'm not saying, it's not a popular view, by the way. It's not the popular view. It's the view I was taught in grad school by Ian Spence, that Scottish guy, and I owe almost everything in stats I know to him. So, Part, and, I, and I think he's right, So, and he's smarter than me, so I'll, I'll go along with him. So I want you to know about comparisons, but again, no one does them by hand at all. You would do those with a computer. Questions, guys? I would never, I would ask you what the post-talk comparisons were. I'm never going to make you do one. No. <laughs> Don't do that. I, no one does these by hand. It just doesn't happen. Anything done by hand? Uh, depending on uh, t-tests, I think that's my Because it's quicker than firing up. Like, I can do a t-test because I can pull up using a spreadsheet. I can get means instead of deviations very quickly. Uh, chi-squared, which is what you might have learned with Dwayne, uh, and we might talk about this course, probably not. I do those by hand all the time. I've never done them with, with a computer because it's stupid. I can get four numbers, you calculate expected values, you plug them in. I did chi-squared one day for a friend of mine over Skype. He just put the camera down onto his data, and I said, okay, do this, now write this, and this, and we've done. You know, it's... Uh, I wouldn't do... Yeah, yeah again, t-test, chi-squared, uh, ANOVA I would typically do by a computer. I wouldn't do that by hand, because it's just too much work. But the most recent things that I've done, all the experimental stuff I've done, has all been chi-squareds I do my hand. It makes it easier. I like easy data analysis. As much as I like this stuff, I like doing it in an easy fashion, not a complicated one if possible. Questions? Other questions? A decent question. All right. Uh, next time, we'll continue talking about stuff. Uh, also, keep your email box, inbox open. Keep looking, and I'll tell you when the SPSS tutorial is tomorrow. Remember, we have a quiz, or not quiz, an assignment due on... Thursday. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.